You see, we all like messages of hope and grace. We all, we all like stories that have hope in them and that they show grace, uh, whether it's a movie or uh, a story that we read in the Bible or a story that we, a, a book that we read. We like the stories that have hope in them. And, but, when, but when we're offering it to others, our commitment is usually fleeting. It's usually fleeting. See, this is, an, this is obvious. obvious. For, for instance, when tragedy happens, there is an outpouring of compassion and aid for a few days, a few weeks, or maybe a few months. But then the people who are still hungry, hurting, are forgotten. The author of Hebrews calls us to do more. Much of our Christianity is about living graciously and being hopeful every single day. See, after explaining the history of God's redemptive planning leading up to Christ, the author of Hebrews concludes with some commands and a little more theology. Not exactly what we all want to hear. But it's what we all need. In, in the next few uh, verses, we will explore what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us. Believers are to show brotherly love, to hold marriage in high honor, and to guard their hearts from the love of money. Does that sound like the world to you? Because it doesn't sound like the world to me. See, I don't think the world shows brotherly love. And it definitely doesn't hold marriage at a high value. Just look at divorce statistics. And then, do you think this world struggles with the love of money? See, with these rights comes responsibilities. See, Jesus says, those who accept Christ are given the right to become sons of God. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, but with this right comes responsibility of being the Christian, the Christians God wants us to be. There are many responsibilities for the Christian. John 14, 15 says this, if you love me, if you love me, how many people in here would put your hands up, would say they love Jesus? Okay. Then the next words are going to really sting because Jesus says, not me. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I didn't say that. See, that's what I love about the Bible. I don't have to say anything because the Bible says it all. So if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We all profess to love him. 
So why do we struggle so hard? Because here's the thing. If we struggled in any of the facts of our life, like we struggle following Jesus, people would leave us. If we struggled this way in our marriage, because I believe your wife or your husband says to you, if you love me, you will follow my commandments. Not actually saying follow my commandments, but, but you see, there's, there's things that I don't do anymore because I'm married to Shelley. There's things Shelley doesn't do anymore because she's married to me. They're commandments. They might not, they're not written down in stone. But they're things we don't do because that wouldn't be good for our relationship. How come we can do it in, in, in certain aspects of our life, but when it comes to following Jesus, we struggle? Is it because we can't touch him? Because we all profess that he's real. What, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not condemning you because I struggle here. I'm saying, what is our problem? Is it because we can't physically see him? physically touch him, that we have a problem listening to what he says? Or is it just a, 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 we're, we're, not, we're not really getting deep into God's word and letting him change our hearts and our minds and our souls to actually believe what he says? Because I don't think that gives you an option. That, that statement, John 14, 15 says, if you love me, so we've all professed that we love him. So, so we've already answered the first question. You will keep my commandments. See, we will accept our responsibilities and our duties. If we do this, we will be pleasing to the Lord and we will have success in the Christian life. I mean, doesn't that sound like a good thing? If we, if, we, if we please God, Dave just read, Jesus gives us two commandments, to love God, okay, and to love, by the way, he's talking about believers when he gives that statement. I think he tells us to love all people, but in that statement, he's talking about other believers. We struggle here. We struggle in just that area. And by the way, Jesus never said, never, it's not nowhere in there, that he said the old law is gone away. He never killed the Old Testament law. Jesus never said the Ten Commandments, they don't mean anything anymore. He just gave another one. And by the way, if we did what Jesus told us to do, we would keep the commandments because it says love God and love people. That's basically what it says. So if we're loving God, we're going to obey him and we're going to do his, his, what he has asked us to do. See, we go, well, people don't like when you talk like this because they're saying, well, you're, you're being legalistic. But the problem with that is, I'm going to serve somebody. I'm going to follow something. 
I'm either going to follow God and obey what he says is good for my life, or I'm going to follow my own will and, and choose something in the world to worship and put in its place. That's your choice. It isn't like, well, you're making this legalistic. You're saying we should obey God. I believe that we should obey God. I believe, are we going to do this perfectly? Absolutely not. But it should make us think when we don't. If we profess that we love Jesus, it should make us think when we do something that doesn't please God, and it should cause us to repent to God and ask for his forgiveness. See, being a Christian isn't just, hey, say a prayer and it's over with. That's not what Christianity is about. I believe if, if, if the people like Peter and Paul that wrote most of the New Testament would laugh at Christianity today. Because we've watered it down so much. We've watered it down so much that it, you, you can't even tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian out there. We're not allowed to say our views because they might offend somebody. We're not allowed to speak, so we just stay quiet. But that's not what we're supposed to do as Christians. We're supposed to, we're supposed to speak truth at all times, but in a loving way. We're not supposed to waver from what the Bible says. The Bible is the word of God. There is no other book like it. So at the end of Hebrews, after, remember why he wrote this book? He wrote it to a bunch of Jewish people that, guess what? We're going back to old habits. Worshipping the way they used to worship. Adding stuff to the cross. It was Jesus plus whatever they decided. But it's Jesus plus nothing. See, we don't serve God, we don't obey his commandments because it's going to get us a better place. It's going to get us sitting closer to Jesus. See, we listen to what the commandment says. We listen to what God says and we say, I want to do that because I want to please him. How could I not want to do that? If somebody does something for you, that's amazing, okay? Don't you want to do something back to say thank you? Don't you feel like you need to do something back to say thank you in some way, shape, or form? I mean, it's just a natural instinct that God put in our hearts. He gave us this instinct inside of us. But we neglect it when it comes to God. We want to say, well, all I have to do is say the sinner's prayer, which, by the way, I've been looking and I can't find it anywhere in the Bible that anybody ever met Christ in, or the, the, in, in the book of Acts where people come up and said the sinner's prayer. Uh, 
it's a man-made prayer. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I think there's more to it than that. It's not about just saying a prayer. It's about laying your life down for him. So if you've done that, this is where now he's, he's been telling you through the whole book of Hebrews. Look, Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is God. So if you believe that, and you believe that Jesus went to the cross, this is the next thing. This is what you should do. We have domestic duties. Verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. We could put brotherly, sisterly love there. Continue. See, we're supposed to have love towards each other. We're supposed to be there for each other. When each other hurts, we're supposed to be there. That is the benefit of being a part of a family. Is that you have other members of that family that can stand by you when you're struggling. So if you're going through something, you can come to the other members and they can pray for you and they can help you and they can be there for you. See? This is how we we grow in Christ. See, we need to practice that. You know, we, we need to practice brotherly love. When was the last time... Don't have to raise your hand. This is a question for your head. Was the last time you had another brother and sister? Because these questions are going to get tougher and tougher as we go. When was the last time you had another brother and sister at your house? For dinner. When was the last time you invited somebody out? Another brother and sister out. When was the last time you got together with another brother and sister? When was the last time you showed love to a brother and sister in God? That stings. That stings me. Because our lives are so busy. We haven't got time. But according to God, we are supposed to do this. We're supposed to be a part of a family. I mean, let, look, the book, they did life together. That means they had people over for dinner. They prayed and ate together. That's what the Bible says. That's what church is supposed to be. We're supposed to show love towards us, uh, towards each other. And that is how true discipleship happens. When you do life together, you will grow together. That is 100% the basis for discipleship. To do life together. I mean, basically, I'm taking that from Jesus. Jesus disciples, what did they do? They went everywhere with him. They hung out together. They ate together. 
That's true discipleship. Doing life together. Verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Another question that you don't have to put your hands up for. When was the last time you had a neighbor over for dinner? This isn't the only spot in the Bible that this says this, by the way. We are supposed to love all people. How are we supposed to reach people? When was the last time you spoke to your neighbor? Most of us don't even speak to our neighbors. We want six-foot fences all the way around our perimeter so we don't have to speak to our neighbors. You know my dream? Is to have a front porch. So I can, and my front porch, if they allow me to do it, will be on the street near enough. So everybody that walks by, I can speak to. Because that's the problem with America. We used to have front porches in America, but people wanted to get private, so they put decks and patios on the back of the house so they don't have to. See their neighbor. They've got garage door opener so they can pull up. They don't even have to get out the car till they get in their house, in their garage. They can open the garage, pull in, close the garage, get out the car. They don't even have to see their neighbors. Yet according here, we're supposed to remember. We're supposed to not neglect hospitality to strangers. How do you know? I don't care if your neighbors are Christians, okay? How, hopefully they're not, because that's the way you can, you, can, you can witness to them and you can pray for them. See, how, if you don't talk to your neighbors, how do you know where they struggle? How? We're all guilty. We're all guilty here. We live in boxes. We live in like, we've got this balloon around us that we walk around in. There's not many of us that actually find out what our neighbor's needs are. There's not many of us that want to talk to people anymore. If we don't know them, it's better to stay away from them. That's, that's, I'm just being honest. I think a lot of us feel that way. But how are we supposed to witness for God if we're not getting to know the people we don't know? How are you supposed to invite people to church? See, the, this is what I don't want, by the way, as a church, as a pastor of the church. I don't want a bunch of people leaving church, another church, and coming here. I think that's a bad way to grow a church, by the way. Because all they're doing is you're moving people from one church to another church to another church. The idea of a church is to bring new people. That's why our commitment says invite non-believers. If somebody's got a church, great. They've got a church. Pray for them. That that, and, and hopefully they're getting fed in that church. 
And I'm not saying you sh- people shouldn't leave churches and move on because I believe that churches can hurt you. I think you should try and work through them issues first before you leave and, and hop to another church and hop to another church and hop to another church. I think you should be committed to where you are. And we all don't, we're all not going to all believe the same thing. So, so, so for, for, for somebody to leave because of something that's in an open hand theology is silly to me. Because there's a lot of other things that are closed hands that we believe 100% the same on. And the ones that are usually in the open hand are not things that, we, that are worth dying over. Verse 3 says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. You know, there's people that are wrongfully accused. There's people that have accepted Christ since they've been in prison. There's people around the world that are in prison because they believe in Jesus. And, and that's, that's, that, always, that always blows my mind when people talk to me and, and it, it, it's Christians that I love and respect and they'll say, you know, getting tough here, won't be long. Before we're like all them other countries and we're, they're throwing people in jail for their beliefs. Well, they've been throwing people in, their, in, in prison for a long time for their beliefs. And I say, bring it on. Just make sure there's somebody else that can preach if you're not, if, you're, if the pastor gets arrested. That's all I say. Because, but we should be praying for people around the world. We should be trying to minister to people in the prisons. We should be trying to minister to the people around. There's ministry people that we support that are in countries that if they were found out that they were Christian, if, they don't, if they're not underground, they're going to die for what they believe. I wonder how full this church would be, or any church in America, if you, could, you was, had a choice. You will denounce what you believe, or you are going to die. Would you still stand strong? Uh, by the way, it's easy to say yes on this side of the persecution. You, you don't. I wouldn't. Here's the thing is, it, but, but thousands of people that have been persecuted have chose not to, uh, have chose to say, I don't believe in Jesus just so they don't have their head lobbed off or get tortured. Because I'm not just saying you could die. For what you believe. These people are tortured for what they believe. I mean, I, I, it blows my mind when I read history and that, that there's people that, that because of what they believed and fought for as Christians were, were put on a stake and set alight while they were alive. And there's pastors that were not tied up and stayed there 
because of what they believed. I personally believe the churches would be a lot less full if we were being persecuted. But the people that were left would be the people that were originally saved in the first place. That's the key. Because just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. You know, I hear stories all the time of people that have been elders and been in a church service and came forward. They've been at church for 40 years. They're serving on the elder board. They're 60 years old. And they come forward and accept Christ because they finally hear the message of grace and the true gospel of the cross. They have been in church for 40 years and didn't know Jesus. They knew of Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. Because there's a difference between knowing Knowing of Jesus and knowing Jesus. That's why I, we, we who was at the membership meeting, I'm sorry I'm going to mention this, but Morgan's testimony is it was so impactful because she did get baptized at, at 10 or 12 years old. But I don't think she was saved when she got baptized. I think she got saved when she, two years ago when she poured her heart out on her bathroom floor and gave her life to Christ. So Morgan, come to church, got baptized, came to church. She was a priest for a while, and and then and then and then she got she really met Jesus. So she knew who Jesus was. If you'd asked her who Jesus was before she got saved, she would have been able to tell you. But then she got saved. Then she knew Jesus. And when I say no, she knew him personally. So just because you come to church doesn't make you a Christian. Verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It's important that as Christians, that we do hold marriage between a man and a woman to a high standard. Because that is what the Bible teaches. That's not what I teach, that's what the Bible teaches. It's not my place to judge anybody else's preferences. But as a Christian, I believe that I should honor the way God has asked us to live our lives and honor marriage as a covenant between two people that should be forever. I'm not saying there's not, there's not circumstances where Divorce is wrong, because I think there's, there's plenty of circumstances where divorce is wrong. 
If you're in a marriage with an abusive husband, I say get out. God doesn't want you in that relationship. For one, you're unevenly yoked because you're a Christian. And obviously, if that guy is abusing you, he's not. Because he wouldn't be like that. He would respect you. Because according to the Bible, husbands are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Christ died for the church. That doesn't sound like somebody that would beat or verbally abuse somebody. That sounds like somebody that would do anything for his spouse. That sounds like somebody you would be willing to submit your life to. That sounds like somebody that you would be okay with, according to the Bible, the man being the head of the household. But the problem is, sin entered the world, and there's a lot of people out there that, that, that are, don't know how to be good husbands and good wives. And the church hasn't helped that problem. Because statistically, there's just as many divorces in church people as there is in out-of-church people. That's a bad statistic. That is something that, according to the Bible, we don't want to be on that statistic list. We should work at our marriages. We should honor God in our marriages. By doing that, we honor the people that we're with. We love the person that God has put in our lives to love. And then, verses 5 and 6 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man, what can man do to me? We should hold money loosely. See, the problem is we live in America. The problem is we're one of the the richest countries Everybody in here is richer than than most of the world. I don't care where your income level is. Okay? But we have this love for money. And, and, And because we've been brought up in America, that we think that money is going to get us happiness. Hey, if I have money, I can buy this and that will make me happy. I don't know, but, but but King Solomon tried that, by the way. I'm just telling you, if you think that money, sex, drugs, everything can buy you happiness, all you got to do is look at, look at Ecclesiastics. Ecclesiastics. Because King Solomon said, hey, I'm going to test this theory. By the way, nobody... By the way, nobody in the world is ever going to be as rich as King Solomon. Nobody's going to have as many women as King Solomon. Because he goes, well, I'm going to really test this theory. I mean, like 400 wives or something and 700 concubines or something. He had a lot of, lot of choices. Let's just say that. He had a vineyard. He made his own alcohol. 
So it's not like he got drunk every single night. He's like, and at the end of the book, do you know what he says? It was nothing. All of it. He had everything you could ever want to make you happy. That the world says, this will make you happy. And guess what? None of it made you happy. Finally, for this point anyway, remember your leaders. We're going to go over the other ones really fast. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We are to respect our leaders. We don't have to agree with them. According to the Bible, we are to respect them. Many points it says we should, we should submit to them. We don't have to agree to them. But, but here it's also talking about your pastor or your pastor or your pastor. It's talking about them people too. That you are to respect your leaders and to remember what they teach you. And then verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We need to remember that Jesus is Jesus who, this is what he's saying, the whole book's been saying Jesus is everything. Jesus is, there's nothing. Jesus is everything. There's nothing else but Jesus. What he's done for you on the cross. Remember, remember, remember that. Every single moment of every single day because you don't deserve it. And if you could remember that at all your decision point making, what, how would that change the way you lived your life? If you could remember what Jesus has done for you, how would that change your life? Instead of just going through the day and then thinking about him a couple times a day. Our divine duties. Nine through sixteen, Hebrews nine through sixteen says, "Do not lead, be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them." We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. See, Christians must remember the unchanging faith that they have in Christ Jesus. See, they were talking because what was happening is, is at this time was Jews were saying, don't eat this, don't eat that. They were, they were saying they believed in Jesus, but then they went back to their Old Testament like, you can't eat pork, you can't do this, you can't do that. They, they, it was Jesus plus don't eat this. Jesus plus don't do this. Jesus plus you must be circumcised. Jesus plus whatever. But it's Jesus plus nothing. There, there, there is no Jesus plus. It's just Jesus. See, 
And that's the problem. They were used to their dietary restrictions and they got saved and they were trying to bring them into Christianity. They, like us today, desperately needed to hear the main message of Hebrews. The new covenant inaugurated by Jesus' blood is far superior to the old covenant of food sacrifices to God. See, our temple is not the temple. It's outside because outside, where did Jesus get crucified? Outside of Jerusalem. That's where the temple was outside. Now he lives inside of us. He has, he has closed the gap. See, we get to go outside the camp to a better altar and a better sacrifice. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for the sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come through him. Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledges his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. See, our hope is not in a fading city of man. It is in the enduring city of Jesus. We wait for the eschatological city, the heavenly Jerusalem and its city for which we can endure persecution outside the camp for Jesus. We are outside our home right now. We don't live in our camp. We live on earth. We are foreigners. We are aliens to this world because we do not belong. And we, where we see the church today, we should be, see a willingness to share. You see, God is pleased with such simple acts of love. We share what we have with each other and are demanding do this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. See, we should be praying, praying for your leaders. You should be praying for your pastors in this church. You should be supporting your pastors. You should be praying for your pastors. That is part of what Paul is saying, because I believe this is how I think Paul wrote the letter. Now, they don't say Paul wrote the letter, but this is the way he closes this letter. This is why I believe that Paul wrote the letter, because he writes it like Paul. So if it wasn't Paul, Paul had something to do with the book of Hebrews. That's all I know, because he closes it like a Pauline letter. 
And, and he, Paul is asking for prayer. Or whoever wrote the letter is asking for prayer. Because we need to pray. Because there's power in prayer. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip with you, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We should look for peace. You see, Jesus rose from the dead. His blood brought salvation and peace. The peace makes you perfect and it makes you able to find God's will in your life. Psalms 143.10 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Romans 12.1-2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may be discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, and he finally ended... The letter, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with me my words of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all your saints, those who come from Italy, send your greeting. Grace be with you, all of you. See, The Christian duties are not requested. They are required. The Christian life should produce fruit. Galatians 5.22-23 lists the fruits. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And when I say the fruits of the Spirit, by the way, they're not just, hey, I have the fruit of joy. You have the fruit of peace. That's not how that works. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to have all of the fruit, not just one piece of the fruit. So we're all supposed to have the the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And Jesus, finally, he says this. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, 
and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, the person who has the fruits of the Spirit will perform his Christian duties faithfully. They won't ask why. They'll see what God wants them to do and they will act. And the only way we get this is if we pour God's word into our souls. That's how we change. That's how we become better Christians. But it won't be under our own power because we can't do it alone. That's what the text says. The text says he has to abide in you and you in him. Without him, we cannot bear any fruit. But with him, and if you submit your life to him, you will bear fruit. That's how you know if you're living in God's will. If you're bearing fruit. So, this week I want you to read Psalms 100 to get ready for next week's sermon on worship. An, explanation, an exploration of the highest privilege with Pastor Drew Burris. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are a great and awesome God and that you do uh, work in us and you work through us. But we have to be willing to submit our lives 100% to you. We have to not keep picking it back up and saying, oh, I'll get it from here, God. I can, I can manage this, God. No, God. We need to fully lay down our lives to you. We need to fully submit our lives to you. Because if we can't do that, we can't truly follow you. And, and we all want to follow you. Because without you, we are nothing. Without you, we are capable of nothing. Without you, we cannot do anything. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.